Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I don't normally do, a different favorite co-host. This time it is Quinn Wilson from the uh, fabulous Swallows of the South podcast. Hopefully you are already familiar with Quinn because you listened to his show. Quinn, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing absolutely wonderfully. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing great as well. I, uh, I've very recently been listening to the show. You may have heard of it. It's called One Shot. Oh, yeah. A little show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- they're getting started. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see them, you know, having some success. Promising future. Uh, but, there- <laughs> but there was a, a, a setting, or I should say a, a game that they were featuring recently called Exalted. Are you familiar with this at all? Uh, No, I don't think I've ever heard of it. Well, then I think you definitely need to listen to the last couple episodes of One Shot because they got a really good GM on there uh, showing them that system. I heard that it was being recorded at an absolutely fantastic convention as well. Uh, A Catacon? (sighs) Sounds familiar. Sure it's not a CadeCon? It might be a (laughs) CadeCon. Or ArcadeCon? I've heard some people pronounce it that way. Yeah, most most people pronounce it that way. So, uh, but anyway, if if, if anyone's listening, is not in on the gag. Quinn was on one shot. Uh, he's been two episodes so far, kind of teaching the gang uh, exalted, and uh, it was recorded at a catacomb. Now we were supposed to do an RPG Academy version of Exalted, and it just never happened. We keep trying, and <laughs> such is the I way mean, of life. Sometimes comedy of errors, like you would not believe. Truly. Yes, uh, but today we are to getting together for faculty meeting episode 103, Cityscapes. Uh, now, the reason that we gather for these faculty meetings is so that Caleb and I, except today Quinn and I, can talk about our recent games and the general state of RPG in our lives. And we hope that through these discussions, we can share some of the experience we've gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we do understand that the opinions we share or the advice we give may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Quinn, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you play, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. And with that out of the way, do we have any announcements this morning? So one huge announcement that we have is that the RPG Academy Twitch channel is being taken over by... Everyone's favorite bald, bearded GM, Scott, (laughs) who is going to be running a procedural crime drama set in a fantasy universe with the wonderfully apt title Lawful and Orderly Special Visions Unit. And if you're interested, that's going to be launching Monday, January 9th on twitch.tv slash the RPG Academy. I'm super excited and you should be too. Yeah, this is pretty ex- ex- exciting for us. We've wanted to do something with our Twitch channel for the longest time, and we never got around to it. And Scott, being Scott's like, hey, I'll do it. And he recruited a bunch of players. They've been doing some test drives, and they're ready to go. So it, I'm really excited for that launch. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you don't do Twitch, uh, the games will be archived on our YouTube page, which you can find at YouTube search for us. I'm in the process of getting our custom URL, but we don't have it yet. But if you search for the RPG Academy, you'll find us. All right, any other announcements? Uh, doesn't look like it, but before we jump into our topics, let's let everyone know how they can get a hold of us. Awesome. So you can find me at the RPG Academy, and of course, Caleb is at the Caleb G. Now, Quinn, what is your Twitter handle? 
I am at the confusingly spelled Monkey Pie Quinn, that is M-O-N-K-I-P-I-Q-U-I-N-N. And you can find my show at Swallows of South. And again, if you go to the RPG Academy website, we have links uh, because they are in a, a network affiliate and someone that you should be listening to. If you want to get a hold of our show, you can email us. Uh, you can email me, Michael, at the RPGacademy.com, or you can email us at the show podcast at the RPGacademy.com. All right. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into today's show proper. We're going to start with our gamers lexicon, and our term today is setting. So, Quinn, how would you define setting as it relates to an RPG? That is a question that you can kind of answer in two two ways. There is the broad level setting, which is the world or location that your game is taking place in. For example, you might start looking at the entire world or even the multiverse that your game is taking place in. You could be playing a game in the Forgotten Realms, but you might be focusing your game on a specific portion of the Forgotten Realms, like maybe even the Sword Coast. And then maybe your session tonight or even your whole campaign is taking place in Waterdeep or Baldur's Gate. And you might be setting a particular scene in a particular location, a seaside tavern, a temple, something of that sort of nature. So your setting could be this sort of broad scale, or it could be where a particular scene or encounter occurs, it can be sort of the theme that goes along with that as well. Okay, and I apologize, I did not include this in the notes for you, uh, but it just kind of came to me that also time, if you're setting it like, you know, America as your setting, you could say this game is in the 1930s or, you know, the far future. So time also could, could be a component of setting. Oh, absolutely. Looking at where things are set, in time gives a lot of important context for what's going on in a setting that allows you to play with and flesh a lot of things out. Excellent. Now, thank you for that. And uh, one of the things that we we wanted to bring you on specifically to talk about, uh, which leads us into our sort of main topic, our General Assembly, is when you want to set your game in a specific place, like a like a city, where the entire campaign, or maybe like a large portion of it, like a whole arc, happens there. Uh, you know, I'm on record, Eberron is probably my favorite uh, published setting. And if you have played in Eberron, it's kind of ingrained in that system, or that setting, I should say, that you're going to visit a lot of places. There are multiple metropolises, uh, metropoli in that setting, continents, uh, you know, there's the underground version. You're going to move around a lot. You're going to explore ancient ruins. You're going to travel to Zendrick and uh, and all the other places I can't think of right now, Corvair and so on and so forth. Sharn. Sharn, uh, yeah, Sharn is, is a big city that uh, a lot of stuff happens in. And it's sort of like, you know, I don't know that it would feel like an Eberron game if you didn't do at least some of that. And that's not to say that's better or worse than anything else. But you wanted to talk about uh, campaigns that that really narrow down and, and maybe more fully explore a single location. So once you kind of explain to me <laughs> what you're talking about, and maybe the listeners will get something from it too. Absolutely. So like you're saying with Eberron, I think that a lot of settings, especially if you're looking at games like D&D, they encourage a sort of travelogue style in their storytelling. And part of that has a lot to do with where they're looking at source material for inspiration. The Lord of the Rings 
which is a huge piece of inspiration for a lot of this media, is all about taking a long journey. And I think that it's interesting sometimes to try to scale that back a little bit and focus playing a game in a single location so you can tease a little bit more out of a more narrow setting while still allowing some avenues for that sort of over-the-top, epic, or it could even be more constrained if that's the type of game you're looking for, storytelling and theme just within a sort of more confined scope. I think... um... I think there's an idea that's kind of ingrained in Lord of the Rings as well. Like you said, most of the, the media around role-playing games where you go on an adventure because where you're at is safe. Right. You know, you're in the Shire, but, but once you leave the Shire, there's danger and there's excitement. There's ancient ruins and ancient powers. And I definitely think that in most D&D games, that's sort of kind of a component that you're going to leave your home village and then you're going to explore new places and, and uncover mysteries, and, and that's the danger. And I think with even within a city, you can still kind of do that. And, and you know, Sharn yes. and Ebron works that way. There's there's so much, so many levels and such depth to Sharn that you can be in a quote unquote safe space where your character starts. But if you go down to the cogs, or if you go to a different tower, or you ascend to some of the spires. It's still almost like it's almost like it's a brand new place, even though it's still within the same location. Exactly. And I think that that's an absolutely vital element of telling a broader story uh, or a longer term story in a more confined setting like a city. Because, believe it or not, metropolitan areas are incredibly varied in their population, what goes on in different areas. So it's very easy to have a safe, sort of space where you might start and then to branch out into the criminal underworld or to have something else going on an influx of uh people from outside of the city that's taking place or a sort of cabal of perhaps like wealthy sorceress conspirators or something that provides a sort of progression or an element of danger that exists outside your immediate safe space but allows for you to explore different elements and themes within the city while providing challenges which scale with your characters yeah i think it's it's kind of common and, and again right or wrong there there has been a belief in these sort of like uh, immigrant populations and the secrets that they hold uh, you know, Chinatown is probably the first one that comes to my mind that, you know, if you go into Chinatown, you might stumble upon this ancient shrine and and true sorceress magic happening, whether that's, you know, contemporary America, uh, America from the 1930s or uh, a separate sort of, you know, a mythological immigration. If you're in like D&D, if you're playing, you know, Eberron, that the 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 you know, I'm trying to, think, I'm trying to think of another, like the elves from a different race or the dwarves from a different place that within their conclaves, there's still these mysteries that your character may need to unravel to, to gain access to, or to gain the trust of that population to gain access to. Exactly. And that's actually a very specific type of narrative that I think that it requires a little bit of consideration because it's this really ingrained trope and it can be very, very interesting to look at. And I think that given the world that we live in today, it's interesting to look at that while making sure that you're not being, especially if you want to 
set a game in a city that takes place over a long time, that you're not painting these groups in excessively broad strokes. I think that really diving in and giving yourself some room to dig around in that can be interesting, especially because learning more about this influx of dwarven immigrants who have come into your city and this weird magic that you might be discovering in the sort of uh, refugee quarter can provide a lot of insight into the way that your city works, the attitudes that it holds towards this group, but also toward dwarven culture in some really interesting and insightful ways. Yeah, I think there's definitely some some true-to-life exploration that you can do in these games, and I think that's a universal truth in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I know we've said it before, and many other shows have. I'm not going to claim that we own this, but you know, you explore truth through lies or through make-believe, mm-hmm. and you can learn a lot about yourself and the world. And I'm not saying, obviously, I, I'm all for that, but it's also not required. Sometimes you can just kill a bunch of orcs, take their loot, go home, and have a good time. Right. Player buy-in is essential. Absolutely. But for you, when you're starting a game, if if you know that you want to or you will have a game that's going to uh, subsist in a very long period of time in a smaller setting, how do you go about creating that as the GM or planning for that versus a game where you know, hey, if they decide day one they're going to screw this village and go up to the next city, is there a different way that you prep for that or that the game should in- unfold to the players so that they want to stay within your city? Absolutely. And there's a couple ways that you can do it. And I'm going to say that the first way is probably the most direct and the easiest. And that is... Tell them? Yeah, like talk talk to people. Have a session zero. I'm a huge proponent of session zero and say, hey, I'm thinking that I want to run a game that is entirely set in Baldur's Gate. Or at least that the first 10, 15 sessions are going to take place in Baldur's Gate. So... While that's happening, I don't want to really leave the city very much, if at all, and get buy-in for that. And then as a GM, when I run more travelogue-style campaigns, I rely very, very heavily on improvisation. I'm generally speaking a relatively improvisational GM, but I improvise more in that setting, whereas if I'm going to take place in or where if a campaign is going to take place in a city, I tend to start with base-level sort of local world-building to create more of a sense of grounding and immediacy and realness that will hopefully cause a level of engagement for the players that makes them want to stay. If you listen to my own show, I actually did something at the beginning of our first major story arc that actually made it impossible for the characters to leave the city, inasmuch as we started as the city was laid siege to. So, you could also use an external force if you wanted to create a plot-level impetus to keep people physically constrained, but you don't always have to do that, and you do run the risk sometimes of chafing against players' sense of agency or railroading if anytime they skirt too close to the edge of the map, there's the spears of an army or a dimensional barrier or what have you. Yeah, it's um, for anyone who's been a long-term listener to our show, the first actual play that we did was called Made Men. And I think I've covered this several times before. It's been a while, though. The idea of that game is that the first six to eight levels 
would be in that city. And within like three sessions, they were outside the city. And, you know, I tried to do physical barriers. There was like a, an, a sea to the south that was dangerous. There were mountains on either side and there was like a vast wasteland desert that's just almost impossible to survive to the north. I thought, hey, I've got them contained. They're going to want to hang out in the city until they get to a certain point. No, pretty much right away. They're like, yeah, screw this place. We're going to the desert, which, again, I'm like you. I, I try to be a more of improv focused DM and I, I rolled with it, and it, it still was a really fun game. But my plan was they stay there. And I think a session zero where I said more explicitly, you know, because the reason they left, in my example, they left because they were in danger and they wanted to get out of the city to hide. Mm-hmm. We probably could have found a place in the city that they could have, quote unquote, hidden mm-hmm. and been safe for a while. Because eventually the danger came anyways. You know, it's not like that really did save them. Right. Because uh, storytelling. Exactly. I mean, they, they didn't go to the desert and then live happily ever after the end. Things happened. Uh, but if I had been more explicit about, hey, try not to leave the city, they probably would have then looked for a place in the city that would have worked. Right. And this ties back in a little bit to what I was saying about I do a little bit more initial setting building when I make a city level campaign. Jim McClure has a theory that he has espoused several times. And... I know it might be a little painful to bring up the name of this network traitor, but he does have some interesting points that he makes. That name means nothing to me. He who shall not be named says that in any given scenario, your players will follow the thing that is most interesting. So whatever it is that has the most appeal and interest is what they will follow. So something that is important to do, because you might not always know exactly what your players will find interesting, but you can make some educated guesses, especially if you know your players well, is to provide the interest and a variety of interest within the city that you're creating, or within that small kingdom or city-state. Your confined area should have differences in type of engagement and type of interest, so that essentially everything that they might need or want, they can engage with on that immediate scale. And when to diverge there very quickly, uh, just in general, if you're the type of DM or GM that wants to avoid railroading, then rather than force them onto the path that you want them to go, make that the most interesting path. Exactly. Make that the most fun that thing, because people have wanderlust when they're bored. If they're not bored, then they're not even going to, you know, it's like on a roller coaster. No one cares that the roller coaster is on rails because it's a lot of fun to be on a roller coaster. If your game is a lot of fun, even though it's on those rails, they're not really going to care. And some of that's knowing your player. Some of it's working with their backgrounds in a session zero. And they say, my character wants to explore uh, the, the politics of like a gladiatorial arena. Then there probably needs to be a gladiatorial arena somewhere in your game at some point. Yep, exactly. If you can curate your experience people will enjoy it. And the best way to curate an experience is to offer that theoretical variety and then also to talk to people. Ask them, what interests you? What do you think sounds fun? And then to offer them avenues to explore that. And I think that it's really easy to do that in a confined city setting in ways that allow you to play with a little bit more cohesion, because everything is a lot more local, you can let fun little things tie into each other. The politics of the gladiatorial arena 
might be involved in elements of the criminal underworld of the setting, which might be involved in some of the goings-ons at the dock, which are then tied into local governmental corruption, etc., etc., and these can all be things that your characters are interested in, and it allows you to sort of dovetail the plots so that they tie together in a way that makes it feel like you're living in a thriving city that has a lot going on, and what's going on in one place impacts what's going on in another, in a way that I think maybe you can feel a lot more than if you are traveling hundreds of miles between sessions. I think one of the benefits of a city sort of campaign is that you can really focus on that interconnectivity. If I'm in one continent or on one continent, one session, and then we teleport to a completely different part of that world or a different part of the plane, then the connections are probably going to feel more forced, you know, if I even make them. But if you're playing in a in a more contained environment, like you could go to a tavern and on the, the first visit, you could say, hey, you notice that the price of stew has gone up an, an extra copper piece. And it feels like a throwaway line. It's not really important. And then maybe the next session you come in, now it's doubled. So eventually I may like, that's kind of weird. And they start asking, you know, we can't, we can't get supplies in. Uh, the docks, they keep saying the ships are being sank off the coast or whatever so that we don't have the supplies we need. So they investigate that. Turns out that's not actually true, but they're not paying the right bribe to the dock master. So another tavern is getting the choicest meats, that kind of thing. Exactly. Because it doesn't all have to be like world-spanning, world-saving adventures. It could just be corruption and bribery and, and I don't say small time, but in a way it is kind of like small time crime, at least to start in a city, you know, you're, you're playing daredevil, you know, you're, you're fighting low level thugs. Eventually it may blossom into a more involved conspiracy that could have a profound effect as you level and you need those types of challenges to make it continue to be fun. Exactly. I ran my first big campaign that I ran in D&D 5e was set in a port city called Port Hyacinth. And it was all, except for maybe one excursion outside of the boundaries of the city itself, it was all set in this city. And it started off as a look at some local crime, and it ended with a an extraplanar monstrosity being manifest outside the ocean near the city and needing to tackle that. You can scale up to the sort of bombastic, ridiculous stories, but if you ground the stakes more immediately, there's a little bit more personal investment in, like, I know the people who live in that city. I don't want them to get hurt. As opposed to maybe a more abstract, it's good to protect people as the grounding of the stakes. Yeah, absolutely, and that's something we've talked about before, is, you know, trying to get PCs or players to attach to NPCs and care about them. My personal belief is have the players help create them. Yep. Uh, but beyond that is have them show up more than once. Mm -hmm. If I have you create an NPC, sure, that, that you have some personal investment. But if you never see that NPC again, because next week we're going to travel to a different continent or a different plane or a different world or just a different, different city, it still is different than, hey, you create an NPC. You've now seen them three times over the course of three sessions. You've talked to them in in what feels like mundane conversations 
and I'm going to tie it back into the story in some way, whether against the stew prices are going up or, you know, they're, they're going hungry. They're not getting enough money. Uh, so-and-so is, you know, uh, trying to muscle in on their territory. If you are the repetition of seeing these NPCs over time should, quote unquote, should build a better connection so that later when they're in danger or they just have problems, your player should be more likely to want to get involved. Right. And it's a lot easier to do that in a city without it feeling contrived because if you're playing travelers and then your recurring NPCs almost by necessity also need to be travelers, which isn't necessarily bad, but you can do a lot more naturalistic or coincidental encounters with recurring NPCs if you run in the same circles in the same city. Or even if you're happen to be at the same place at the same time. Something else that I think is afforded by a more localized campaign, more or less to that end, is the idea that you can really establish and flesh out and play with a sort of home base for your characters, where they have a lot of grounding and investment in where they are immediately. And sometimes you might even see people want to take mechanical steps towards playing around with that if you've established a business that your characters run that is where you routinely meet or everyone is invested in you might have one player like your rogue who is all about playing around with and collecting money trying to grow the business into something bigger which then gives investment in that business and it gives you something to play with as you introduce threats because if someone's trying to cut into your bottom line, or if, as things get more and more intense, the physical stability of your business or your home base is threatened, I think that gives you a good sense of personal stakes in addressing what's going on. Your home is in danger. Yeah, that goes, that ties directly into like the NPC. If you create your own base of operations and you've you've invested in it in the game, then yeah, if you know suddenly your uh, your attendance, like your nightly take, has dropped by half, you're going to want to know why, and then you might start exploring. Oh, look, there's been another underground casino has opened up, and they have this game that you didn't know about, or you know they have this type of drug or this special alcohol, or maybe the singer that entertainer that's bringing people in, and you could have a session that is focused on trying to lure that entertainer from their establishment to yours, maybe involves a little bit of fisticuffs with some local thugs. Maybe it's all political. Based on the type of players you have and the type of game they enjoy, that same sort of situation scenario, which may never come up in a normal, quote-unquote, normal game, could you know be an entire session of fun. Like As a player, I would really enjoy that type of game. Absolutely, I would too. And that's definitely something, I think, to look at, where... An incredibly important aspect of this type of game is character. Be that the character of the setting that you're in, flushing it out and giving it life and personality, and then NPCs that you're interacting with on a consistent basis, and even the PCs, I would argue even especially the PCs, because if you're telling a more constrained story, you're going to have a lot more probably, recurrent locations, recurrent characters, and it pushes you towards telling a story that is about the personal investments of these people and their immediate relationships. Because if you're in a city, 
and you're there for a long time, it's really hard not to make connections. And if you are not leveraging those connections, I think that you might be losing some of the really, really strong appeal of running a game that is more narrow in focus because you can use the setting to reflect those, to reflect the emotions and the struggles of your characters in a very, very personal way. I think that this game is essentially asking to tell a more personal story. Kind of feels to me like it's also an opportunity to have a little bit more shades of gray in your NPCs. You know, I, for some reason, like if you're tell what I, what I would think of as like a big story, you know, it's again, world spanning, multiverse spanning, your bad guy's probably going to be very broad stroke bad. You know, a necromancer who wants to destroy all life and raise an army of dead or or a, a demigod who wants to destroy the universe and remake it in their own image. And, you know, you may give them some... Uh, some semblance of a personality that you find out that the reason they want to do this is in some way altruistic. So it's not, you know, but it's almost like a twist at the end. Like I'm, I'm going to do this evil thing, but for a good reason. But if you're in a confined space where maybe a low level bureaucrat, you know, takes bribes is very selfish, but also will not let drugs come in next to the school or the orphan, or there's, you know, they have a very sort of a protective nature to a, what would like immigrant population. You can have these, NPCs that have all these different shades that you're like, okay, it's, they're almost like a real person in a way where if they don't recur, you can't really do that. You can't explore to that level. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. And I'm one of those people who loves that sort of exploring the shades of gray and the choices that your characters make and in the characters that they interact with. One of the big things that I've done in Swallow since it's set so far entirely in a city aside from side episodes that we've done the main villains that we've got right now have a lot of reasons that you might really really hate them and they're they're doing really really bad things but they also are underlined by this sense of altruism or justification they believe that what they're doing is right and they have personal flaws and conflicts, which is a little... The style of this storytelling offers a little bit more space to explore those and to give you ways to look at that, which provides different avenues to try to solve those problems, I think. So I definitely think starting a game set in a city works very well for the type of game that I enjoy playing and running. I think the the thing that I would struggle with is once you get sort of mid-tier or upper tier, and you know, this is more for like a D&D style game. There's obviously other RPGs, but how do you, without giving any spoilers if possible mm-hmm. for your current campaign, how do you continue to scale up the difficulty in the encounters? And, and what I mean by that is at first level, fighting four thugs in an alley could be a, a, a fun encounter. It could be a challenging encounter. But if I never leave that city and now I'm fighting four elite guard, where were they at when I was fighting the thugs? Like, how does it make sense for the challenges to scale? Like, why weren't they just there the first time? I mean, and I know there's some ways that you can do with that, but I want to get your theories on on how you scale the difficulty. Right. So there's a couple ways that you can do it. And if you start a campaign with a sense for broad level progression where you have 
vaguely in mind, maybe endpoints or plot points way down the line that you think are important, you can drop little hints over the course of the game that allows for things to feel like they are growing. Threats are progressing over time and growing in the background so that when you change venues within the city for a particular arc, it makes more sense that maybe these people have been brought in or they've been training up so that when you encounter them, it feels like less of a weird contrivance. And there's also an extent to which you might need to accept that there are certain contrivances that are made in a game, especially like D&D, where there are constraints around what is a level-appropriate encounter and how do you make that work. You can also hint at... For example, in that Port Hyacinth game I talked about earlier, there was a pretty extensive network of old sewers that ran underneath the city that offered a number of venues for the criminal underworld, but parts of which were inaccessible because they were essentially patrolled by creatures that were too high level for your average thug to deal with, and then as your player characters scale up, they are able to progress into these areas or deal with these threats that make life difficult for other people. You could also introduce the idea that there are stakes or concerns which are more important to these high-level threats, which mean that while your characters are lower level, maybe there's a level of arrogance in the NPCs in ignoring them until they're too big a threat to ignore anymore. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty sort of classic trope that, and I think that's something some people struggle with, with, you know, why doesn't the necromancer just wipe the party out at first level? Because the necromancer doesn't care about the party at first level. They're inconsequential. It's not worth their time. Sure, they may send a lieutenant off to deal with them, but even if they kill that lieutenant, eh, who cares? I got bigger problems to worry about. You know, so it's okay for the main bad guy to just not show up and just wipe the party the first time they inconvenience the the main bad guy. Uh, a couple other things that you mentioned that kind of came to mind was, and it's kind of video game tropey, but I think it can work in a game like this where there's an area that is sort of off limits. You know, like the under sewers, uh, kind of like the cogs in Sharn, where they've been sealed off because there's things down there that are are dangerous. So you just no one goes there. But of course, at some point you'll have to go there, but that's when you get to a level appropriate, you know, to that challenge. Uh, you know, maybe first, second, third level, you keep being told, maybe you don't even confront it directly. So it's not like the door's in front of you and the players don't take it, but just throughout the course of the, the game, there's constant reminders of the under sewers and the dangers that used to be there. And, you know, years ago they sealed it off and there haven't been any attacks of blah, blah, blah since then. And then, of course, eventually they're going to learn, well, this thing that's really important to what you're trying to do, yeah, it's down there. So you're going to have to go down there and get it. Absolutely. And I think that that suggestive storytelling is important in almost any game, but it's something that I personally really enjoy engaging with, where you make these small hints or these comments regarding something that allows you to sort of point to these things that exist in the setting and... You don't have to make it explicitly off-limits, and there's a lot of people who endorse this philosophy in sandbox gaming of telegraphing dangers 
and if people decide to go engage with them, if you have telegraphed the threat appropriately, it will not feel as though you are being intentionally or willfully difficult to the players when they enter an area that has been time and again pointed out to be very dangerous. And so if they get hurt while they're there, you gave them fair warning, and <laughs> right. it gives them reason if they they make it out, and please give people an out if they do wind up in those situations. Um, I think that it's important that even if you have hinted at things, completely refusing to pull the punches and just to let the party die is kind of a D move. And that loss provides good reason for when you are leveled up, and when you are ready to take it, you have more personal stakes in coming back and dealing with it. Right. And Well, I'll jump in here, because the, what came to my mind is I would like to see a situation where, okay, so, so our characters, just to follow this example, mm-hmm. we, we're now going into the under sewers where there's something down here that's dangerous. I don't necessarily want to kill my characters if they go down there too early, but maybe the way they, they can get out is by leaving the door open. Mm-hmm. So the, the the thing is now loose in the city. So they didn't die, but they've made their lives much more dangerous and put people they care about in danger. Yep. So, you know, that's that's a way for you to add challenge and I don't say punishment, but consequences without just going, okay, you're going to drop a new character. I, th- I think death is one of the most boring consequences in a D&D game. That is exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> And then just to throw back really quickly to the other about the escalating challenges, there's lots of examples in media tropes where the bad guy that you're facing hires out someone to fight you because they know that you're too powerful. So they bring in a gunslinger who's more dangerous than you. They bring in a hulking beast that's stronger than you. And very likely this may go terribly wrong for everyone involved because the monster is now set loose, turns on their former master, and now they're in control. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know you could do it every time, but that could certainly explain explain some of the jumps and challenge where, you know, I brought in a whole tribe of orcs uh, because their warriors can fight you and they've now taken over a quadrant of the city because they don't quite understand how bureaucracy works. Exactly. And something that, again, if you have buy-in, you're allowed to play around with, I think, a little bit more in this type of game. You can sometimes go session after session after session without combat and there's sometimes a pretension that that is a better way to play games i don't necessarily agree i enjoy playing games like that but i don't think that it's objectively better but in that example where you have an orc tribe come in and take over a quadrant of the city it allows you to spend some time maybe not directly dealing with that challenge in a combat sense but to spend some time dealing with the bureaucratic or economic fallout of that happening in a way that allows you to pace those big challenges in ways that allows you to build up so that it feels appropriate when you are dealing with the escalation of challenges. And one of the great things, especially about 5e, is with bounded accuracy, you can play sort of a numbers game where... Maybe your enemies aren't actually getting stronger. They are just rallying more resources. Because you can make a level-appropriate challenge using relatively low CR creatures. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, There's also lots of tropes from, like, mobster 
uh, history and media where they send the femme fatale, mm-hmm. assuming you're playing male characters or it could be a, a male fatale or a love interest is either turned against you so they poison you or they some way handicap you so that when you are then attacked later, in, in D&D terms, we've wasted resources. Something happens so that you are not at full capacity when you go into the fight. So even though you're fighting the same level thugs, they have a lot better chance because you don't have your weapon because it was taken from you or you've lost your hit dice because you were poisoned or uh, you were kept awake for two days on some kind of whirlwind, whirlwind romance escapades. So you're fatigued, quote unquote, when you go into the battle. Mm-hmm. You know, there's ways within the narrative of the story to make it make more sense rather than just, oh, well, here's a fourth level fighter. Here's a sixth level fighter. And now here's an eighth level fighter that's fighting you. And I, I would find most of those probably more interesting than, than that, you know, finding some way for the, within the narrative to make you handicapped, I guess, in a way, or, or, or resource-strained as you go into that next encounter. Absolutely. And sort of to that end, you don't want to handicap your characters before every encounter because sometimes you do want people to go into an encounter at full capacity so that they can feel that. And if you want them to feel that, maybe it's okay for them to wipe the floor with these people sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that might that might be the justification for the escalation. Like, I sent my five best goons after you, and you just murderized them. Clearly, we're outmatched. I need to do something drastic. Exactly. Bum, bum, bum. Okay. All right. So, again, just we're, we're going to getting close to the point where we're going to have to wrap up somewhat soon. Mm-hmm. Are there any other, any other big sort of elements about running a city-based campaign that you want to touch on before we get too far into this? No, I think that mostly to summarize, you want to focus on characterizing the setting itself and the characters you're interacting with. You want to think about consequences and interconnectivity. And if you take the time to focus on those and allow for a variety of interesting things so that the most interesting thing is always where you want to tell your story... You should be pretty well on the road to telling an engaging story in a sort of city setting. Very cool. And and I would give sort of the, some of the same general advice I give otherwise is, you know, think big, but start small. Mm-hmm. Your city-based campaign is still going to start in one place, whether that's the docks, an abandoned warehouse, the town square, a tavern, the mayor's office, an orphanage, whatever. That's really all you need to start with is that one location and what's going to happen to start with. And whether you're an improv heavy GM where you say, hey, where do you guys want to go? And they go, let's go down to the docks. Okay, do you know anybody there? Yeah, I know the dock master. And you allow them to help you build out the city or you just simply plan out, okay, you said you want to go to the docks. We're going to end the session here. Before next session, I will have created the docks. I'll know the dock master. I'll know some of the ships that are there. I'll know some of the, the you know, uh, foremen and the, and the taverns that are there. And you kind of build it out as you need to. Don't think that you have to sit down before the game starts and map out an entire city, populate it with, you know, this many people and this demographic and this many taverns. And if you can do that, more power to you. If you want to do that, more power to you. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And most importantly, I don't need to do that to tell an engaging story in a cityscape. Yes, I 100% agree with you. And to that end, don't be afraid to ask questions of your players between sessions. I do that a lot. About 60% of my GMing and my prep comes out of asking questions of my players 
questions about like what would be interesting what do you want where do you think you might want to go next session and using those as prompts to drive putting engaging things into my sessions and there's a level to which if you have everything super fleshed up beforehand it can drive a level of inflexibility which can be sometimes frustrating not necessarily but it's a pitfall that i have experienced in my own in my own games no, I absolutely agree. I think that it, it comes down to the types of players, uh, the players who want to know that the city exists and they need to explore it and find things would probably rather enjoy you doing that. Uh, a type of player that is more, you know, storytelling probably wants to be able to input and say, no, I know a guy, he he works at the docks. Uh, you know, he and I grew up together, I haven't talked to him in a few years. And then they want you as the DM to be able to put that person in there without destroying your story you know, you're the GM, you know your players better than we do. And if you don't know them that well, again, ask them those questions, ask them questions between sessions. Though I will just throw out one small, small caution because this has hilariously happened to me. And I think it's been documented. Uh, there was a, an episode of Made Men where we did that. We ended the session. I asked them what they wanted to do. We spent about 10 minutes and they, they told me exactly what where they were going to start. Five minutes after we sat down at the table, the next session, they went in a completely different direction from what they said. So it happens. You've just described the preparation and execution of almost every episode of Swallows of the South. I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> I have an idea for where I think they're going to go. And five minutes in, they are <laughs> running off in a completely different direction. So yes, be prepared for that. Yes. I, again, that goes. my new favorite saying is prep, don't plan. Right. Uh, don't don't plan they're going to go A to B, but prep what would happen if they do, and then you can flexible. You can be flexible, and move things around. Like, oh, I had planned on four dock workers to attack them. Uh, now it's four casino workers. Oh, now it's four bandits out off on the road. Exactly. Preparation isn't important because of what you get out of the prep. It's important that it causes you to think about things. The consideration that prep brings allows you to be flexible. And I think that that's the important thing to get out of prep, even in asking a lot of questions and thinking that you know where things are going to go. Yeah, the the better you know your own setting, the better off you're going to be able to be flexible when they go in those different directions. Because you may have thought, you know, they probably eventually will go to a tavern. Let me make up a tavern. But then they go to a different town. Well, that town needs a tavern. So it'll just be that tavern. Precisely. You know, it, it's more modular that way. Awesome, Quinn. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise uh, regarding cityscapes. Again, I've I've really enjoyed running and playing games that are more centrally located, and I would like to do so again in the future. Uh, but we're going to move in now to our last segment for today, which is our new student introductions. If you're new here, again, this is where we take a, a class and a background from the D&D 5e Player's Handbook, mush them together, and try to come up with some examples of what might be an interesting version of that character. And we try to bring in media types, if we can, media examples, I should say, if we can think of it at the time. And through random number generation, thanks to my Twitter account, today our class background combo is the Sorcerer Pirate. So I will turn it to you first, Quinn. Do you have any thoughts on... Uh, a sorcerer pirate type of character. What comes to mind when you think of that combo? So I know that a while ago in their Unearthed Arcana, and I think that they canonized it in the Stormcoast's Adventurer Guide, there's a like storm elemental sorcerer that was introduced. And I think that that's an interesting way that you might go with a pirate. Someone who 
is a sort of salty character who comes from this seafaring background, maybe even a seafaring lineage, and sometime back in the bloodline there was this mixing with an elemental force or a spirit of the sea or storms, and that awakens in their escapades as a pirate and draws them into maybe a deeper connection with the sea or causes them to seek out different avenues to explore these newfound powers. I think that when I think of a pirate from media, not probably from real life, Mm -hmm. but there's a sort of, you know, streak of individualism and a bucking of authority. You know, we are pirates because we do not follow the rules, more of a campy version and I think that fits very well with with the sorcerer, that sort of independence where we're going, we're going to do it our own way. You can survive and thrive just by the, you know, the wit uh, and, uh, of your character and your, you know, how quickly you can think on your feet. So I certainly see like a pirate captain that could be a sorcerer that because uh, those, those things just mesh so well together. And, you know, being a pirate and being able to cast fireball or fly or walk on water, those are very handy things to have on a ship. So they certainly could go well together. I think the issue is if you're going to play a pirate as in a game, probably a captain doesn't really work very well because then you know, there's like a, the difference of the power and power levels. So maybe it's more like a stowaway. You, uh, you stow away because you are in a society where sorcerers are hunted and killed or feared or something, or maybe even they're revered and you just don't want to be part of that culture. So you stow away on a ship, get out to sea, and now you're trying to make your way. And as your powers develop, you become more and more helpful or possibly dangerous to the crew because they may want to throw you overboard because you keep setting things on fire accidentally. Right. And to tie into what you were saying about the sort of individualism of pirates, I think that sorcery ties into that in a really, really fun way because... Mechanically speaking, sorcerers get to make their own rules. That's what metamagic is. You're saying, hey, magic, screw you. This is how I want it to happen. And you make it happen, which ties into that theme really, really well. And uh, kind of what you were touching on, you know, if you think pirate first, uh, very possibly you've sailed off to mystic shores, places where most people have never been before. You could have found some sort of treasure. That kind of works almost better for a warlock, but again, maybe you found something. Maybe you discovered uh, someone on a, an abandoned island, and they were able to awaken your powers, and now you can't find that island again. Absolutely. It allows you to tell these sort of Odyssey-style, almost, background stories, and then there is that like wild-touched sorcery that you get, that chaos sorcerer, So maybe you did wind up having this weird encounter with one of those strange creatures of the sea, and it happened to bleed over into you, and now you're extra chaotic. And on a ship, being at risk of accidentally conjuring a fireball is terrifying. Oh yeah, absolutely. As you were saying, I just had an idea of an encounter where you're out at sea, your ship gets um, damaged in a storm, and you're just basically scuttled. And some sort of like sea nymph or mermaid or water elemental shows up like, oh, you know, you're in our lands, we'll help you. And they provide some sort of weird feast, you know, and everyone in the crew is given food and sustenance. 
but there was something in that water or something in that fish or, or something they ate. And then like a year later, all of the crew started manifesting these powers. Yep. I love that, actually. I love that a lot. It gives you a lot to tie into late later motivations for your characters, even, of exploring that if they want to come back and see those people again and figure out, like, what did you do to me? <laughs> yes. Like, you might not be happy about these powers that you've manifest. Or you want more. It could be that, too. Absolutely. I want more of that tuna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I want sorcerer tuna. <laughs> Um, from, from media, the only thing that came to mind was, uh, this is an oldie, the Pirates of Darkwater. Are you familiar with that cartoon I'm at all? I'm not. It's, uh, probably before your time and didn't last very long, but it was, uh, on a world where pretty much the oceans were infected with some sort of weird, almost like oily, viscous, uh, malevolent power and all the seas were getting corrupted and there was a crew and I don't remember their names. It was three crewman on a ship that had the some sort of amulet that would help them locate the seven pieces of MacGuffin that would solve the world's problems. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that uh, at least one of them had was a sorceress of some sort. Uh, that's the only media type I can think of. I'm sure there's some I'm not thinking of. Yeah, I'm also having trouble thinking of concrete examples who really easily fit into this mold. And maybe that's because I don't read a lot of fantastical or consume a lot of fantastical seafaring fiction but yeah i i'm not having these strong iconic examples come to mind which kind of makes me sad because <laughs> it's an interesting thing to play with yeah we might have to change we'll have to make our own we'll have to change that um so as always we will throw it out to our listeners if you have ever played a sorcerer pirate and your sort of mushed together version was different or better than ours please let us know send them uh, send them in let us uh let us read yours you can tweet them or leave us a comment or email us or if you um have more media examples that we could have drawn off of and we forgot them let us know that as well so uh we hope you've enjoyed today's show quinn thank you so very much for joining us i really appreciate your insight and again i really love your show and happy to have you as part of our uh, network thank you so much for having me I think it goes without saying that I'm a pretty huge fan of your work as well. Uh, it's been a heck of a lot of fun being here. Awesome. So the last thing we're going to do today is we do have two new patrons who have joined us since our last episode. So Chris Wittich and Michael Pruitt, thank you so much for becoming part of our Patreon group. Uh, your support means a lot to us. Yes, thank you, Chris and Michael. Uh, if anyone else out there would like to become a patron of ours, you can do so by, do so by going to patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. Uh, and also, Quinn, you have a Patreon as well, correct? We do. We are at Swallows of the South on Patreon. And you can get some interesting things like thank yous and even contribute to certain portions of the show. So that's something to check out. Absolutely. So whether you are wanting to donate financially or not to either of our shows, we thank you for listening and being a part of what we do. So for Quinn, this has been Michael, and we will see you next time. Meeting adjourned. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. 
We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash vrpgacademy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at vrpgacademy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.